Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. My name is Kimberly Trung, and to my virtual right, I have Doug Ameth. Um, was that, that was Fat Albert? <laughs> I was. Or was that I, just a hey, I, hey, hey? I was trying to channel Fat Albert, but it was not a great, it wasn't it was, great. Yeah, it was close. It was hurry, hurry, close. Hurry. I, oh, much better, much better. <laughs> I was trying to Way do better. my take on Fat Albert, you know, not really trying good. To do yeah, a... you got to put your own spin on it. <laughs> Different, hey, 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 and to my virtual left, hey, 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 to Paul Ducklin. Hello, folks. Guys, before we get into this episode, you know that Doug, Duck, and I want to give you our favorite wrecks of the week, and I'm just gonna go uh, go and give you mine. It's a very easy one. I'm ashamed to admit that I've only just tried Ethiopian food for the first time last year. Then, of course, the world uh, went into chaos uh, with a pandemic, so I wasn't able to eat Ethiopian food all year because it's not exactly an easy drive for me. There is a little Ethiopia here in Los Angeles, and there's a wonderful restaurant here called Lalibela. And oh my God, it is a wonderful experience. You have to eat with your hands. You can do takeout. So, uh, but it, again, it's a very far drive for me. But I was able to get back into the restaurant and uh, eat this wonderful Ethiopian food. If you like starch, beans, and meat, you will love Ethiopian food. So, Doug, what do you have on this week for a recommendation? Well, it sounds like you get to eat with your hands, not you have to eat with your hands, if you <laughs> ask me. This is, yeah, so, however you view it, yeah. Um, I, haven't, I don't often do music recommendations because I'm 42. I'm very set in my ways. I don't <laughs> like new music. It frightens me. It makes me angry. I, don't, I think it's overproduced. I think it's used in computers. I don't think the musicians are very good. But I have a band this week that I really am starting to sh- take it a shine to. Oh. The band is called Iration. They're originally from Hawaii, but they relocated to Santa Barbara, California. What? They're kind of like a love child of 311 and Sublime, but with Ooh. pretty straightforward feel-good lyrics. Not as political. Um, it's a nice rock reggae mix as the weather gets nicer outside. So if you're going to go sit on your patio, the sun's shining, maybe you're going to have a beer, like kind of relax, throw on some iration and see what iration. you think. I-R-A-T-I-O-N. All right, well... Will this music recommendation go hand-in-hand hand with what Duck has to recommend this week? Duck, what do you have? Well, I wouldn't have one in the left channel and one in the right channel, because that would be confusing. Don't you want to play two songs at one time? <laughs> Isn't that a great experience? I'm trying to match up reggae with a doomy rock. I don't think that's going to work. You just pick one or the other. So mm. you could try, if you want to start coding. Wind Hand is the name of the band. Recommending this week. They are from a place called Virginia in the United States of America. (laughs) And yeah, all I can say is the guitarist plays a Gibson SG, like like Tony Iommi. Um, He's got a crybaby pedal, like Jay Hendrix had. And Mm. if you go to their website, he actually owns and uses a 1978 Matamp GT120 which is, you know, we talked about Matamps on the podcast the other day, still handmade in Britain. When you order one, it says, allow 30 days not for delivery for us to build it, all with valves or tubes, as you guys call them. And he's got an original one from 1978. And, uh, you know, that amp, as it itself describes itself, it is designed to be loud and clean, except when incredibly loud. 
So you can get some idea of what this band is going to sound like. Female vocalist, so doom rock band with with very with soaring vocals. I think you'll okay. like them. Okay, all right. Wind hand. I wish I could find. There was uh, I had a wah wah pedal that I sold on eBay around 2002. At the time, they were going for about 40 bucks. But uh, I was the listing. I, instead of just listing like wah wah pedal, gently use whatever. I wrote this whole thing. I was like. I don't even know why I bought this because I'm such a quitter at guitar. Like, I wish I would stick with something in my life, but I can't, and I failed a guitar, so I'm listing my pedal. <laughs> and I don't know how things, however things worked in 2002, it went semi-viral. I guess people emailed it around, and the pedal ended up selling for $150 because the listing got uh, a lot of traffic because of this stupid story that I wrote. And you I can't went find viral, it. Doug. You went viral. In, t- in 2002, <laughs> my wall well, pedal. His pedal went viral. Yes. Yeah. You know, but I guess it's the next best thing, right? It was the sob story. Like, please, someone give this pedal a good home because I sure couldn't. I bought it and just let it sit there collecting dust because I can't stick to guitar lessons. Oh. Unfocused. So. Oh, yeah. I wish I knew how to play any instrument. Oh, well, another lifetime, I suppose. All right, before we get into these headlines this week, I'll quickly tease the oh no, which always happens at the end of our episode. This week's oh no, uh, we're going to take you back to the early days of online shopping. Guys, we're going to have a great time. Great time. All right, Doug, what do we got? We are going to talk about a Firefox update. We're going to talk about Rowhammer. Ow! (laughs) We're going to talk about an IoT bug report that claims a lot of devices may be impacted. But first, fun fact. You know those orange plastic tracks for Hot Wheels cars? Mm. More than 6,000 miles of tracks are no. produced each year. Wow. That's the distance from Los Angeles to Paris and then some. And for those of you keeping score, my family buys roughly half of all those tracks. And my boys <laughs> leave them all over the house, the yard. There's some on the roof. They're everywhere. And Doug has no feet left. Yep. That, that and Lego. And I got poor night vision because I've been staring at computer monitors for the past 20 years. And I just, I turn off the lights on the main level of the house and I come upstairs and it's just like, it's, list, it's imagine listening to an old man swearing <laughs> and falling. That's every night. Yeah. Oh, so the Lego digs into one foot and the car whizzes out from under the other. Yep, and so then the track a double injury. flips up and smacks me in the face like a rake. <laughs> it's like an it's like a good like eighties. All comedy we need right now, there. Doug, just is the sound of a thousand tiny violins. Yeah, it's just a, a gauntlet every night, sort of obstacle course to get to bed. <laughs> All right, that is a okay. fun fact. What do well, we got for our first headline? Let's talk about uh, this Firefox eighty eight patch. Mozilla's Firefox browser has managed to stay out of the browser bug spotlight for a while, as Chrome and Chromium's last few releases have included patches for zero-day security holes. And with this latest Firefox release, Mozilla has indeed addressed a security issue, but in a good way. So what's going on, Paul? Well, Firefox releases come out every four weeks, so they're not aligned with the calendar month like many other releases they're literally every four weeks so like like full moon they sort of drift through the month over the year the reason that it's four weeks and not a month is it used to be every six weeks 
um, which is of course 42 days and 42 is a hitchhiker's guidey number uh, <laughs> but then they figured that's that's a bit long so they went for four weeks so you get a whole bunch of security fixes when there's a new uh, you know that the leftmost number in the Firefox version increases so this month's is 88.0 and fortunately for Mozilla that there are no super critical bugs that they're fixing they've all got the maximum level of high not like super duper or dangerous because they kind of got to them first but they've got pride of place for what's not really a bug fix but it's a, a sort of change in behavior Mozilla Firefox is the first browser to come out with this. According to Mozilla, Safari and the Chromium project, which means Chrome and Edge, will follow suit. And basically, they've taken some well-defined, well-known browser behavior. I didn't even realize this was a problem. I'd, it had kind of, I'd never really thought about it. Uh, but something to do with how you manage having multiple tabs. Uh, it turns out a thing called window.name in JavaScript. It's a variable you can set where you start up a new tab, you give it a name or a moniker, a nickname if you like, and then in future you can refer back to that tab by name so you can push new content into that second tab. So if you've ever used you know, a web service that has, say, a preview window, that one, one usage for that is it means you can create a tab, you can give it the, ta the, the tag or the moniker, preview and then in future whenever you open new links you can just say open them in this particular named tab so if you preview 10 different articles in your content management system you don't get 10 tabs you get one however it turns out that this window.name variable doesn't follow what's called the same origin policy in a browser because it's never been seen as something that you put personal data in and the same origin policy is that fundamental rule in browsers that says only variables, JavaScript variables and cookies set by website X can be read back by website X. So it stops marketing website Y or cybercriminal phishing site Z from sniffing out things like your username, your password, the contents of your shopping cart from website X that you visited earlier absolutely fundamental to web security but this apparently casual variable window dot name it turns out that survives from one page to the next to the next and some how can i put this naughty people on the internet not just crooks but apparently what you might call somewhat underhanded marketing companies have got in the habit of using the name for the tab as a kind of secret tracking code that you just wouldn't expect so firefox from 88 said no more can't do that uh you know you can give a, the tabs that you create and pop up a name so you can refer back to them later but when you go to the next site that we're going to wipe out that variable like all the others and although it's a small step it is one tiny little extra bit of potential trackability lopped out of modern browsing what's not to like and that there's a bunch of other little bug fixes that came along. And as far as the what to do section of the article that we always like to cover, Paul, I can give you a break on this one if you want me to take it. Update Firefox. <laughs> step yep. one. Uh, step one. Step two is you're done. <laughs> okay, that's Firefox 88 patches bugs. It kills off a sneaky JavaScript tracking trick on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Okay, before we get into this next headline, I quickly want to give a shout out to our recent mini-sode. So if you uh, aren't aware, there is a mini-sode right before this episode, 28.5, where 
lovely Paul Ducklin interviewed our in-house cybersecurity expert, Chester Wisniewski, uh, and they talked about the topical news story about FBI's uh, recent use of a malware-like method to forcibly clean up hundreds of servers still infected in the Hafnium aftermath. Hafnium is definitely a topic we've talked about here on the podcast. Uh, Duck, can you give us a little bit of background on this minisode and uh, what you learned from it? Yes, uh, it's a great conversation. We're focusing on this one issue. To some people, it seems completely uncontroversial. The court gave the FBI warrant to go after service in the US that had already been hacked by crooks. The crooks had put web shells, remote access Trojan horses onto those servers and the FBI were authorised to use those one last time basically to tell the thing, remove thyself. So they used the malware to get rid of the malware. A very low risk exercise in this case because the malware is super simple, no known bugs. Uh, and you'd think the people go, well, it's not really their job to do it, and the company should have been doing it themselves, but golly, six weeks on from the Haftium aftermath, if they haven't done it now, maybe somebody else needs to give them a poke with a pointy stick. Uh, but not everyone felt the same way. This is quite controversial. Other people saying, you know what, this has nothing to do with law enforcement. They shouldn't be allowed. They should just stay out of it, no matter how bad it is. It's the thin end of a wedge. You know, all of that stuff. So we've got... FBI conspiracy theories versus what a jolly good idea. Nobody seems to be in the middle. Go and have a listen to that mini-sode. And if you go to the Naked Security article where we've embedded it, uh, you'll find both sides of that argument. Um, come and have your say. We'd love to hear your comments. All right, let's get into this next headline. Serious security. Rowhammer is back, but now Go on, it's called... do the song. You know you want to. Rowhammer. Bum, <laughs> Why don't you call me? I've just seen plasticine stop motion animation in my head now. Oh, God. If I could forever be memorialized like that, that would be fantastic. If you are a stop motion animator and you want to do a row hammer slash sledgehammer parody, call me up. I'm ready. Oh, Kim, you could go on Fiverr right now and get it done for about five bucks at it. (laughs) You can get anything on Fiverr. (laughs) That's just true. Okay, well. Back to the headline, Serious Security, Row Hammer is back, but now it's called Smash. So It doesn't have the same ring, does it? No, it does not. No, exactly. Smash, I mean, I just think Hulk, uh, nothing wrong with Hulk. I have nothing against the Hulk, but, you know, Row Hammer does have have a ring. So, if you may or may not remember Row Hammer, either way, it's back, and like we said, it's called Smash. Row hammering is a reliability problem that besets many computer memory chips, notably including the sort of RAM in your laptop or mobile phone. Simply put, row hammering means that if you read the same memory addresses over and over and over again millions of times, the repeated electrical activity in the part of the chip where your data is actually stored may cause enough interference to affect the values in neighboring memory cells. Wowie, wow, wow. So, duck... What is Rohammer? What is Rohammering uh, for those who may not remember? Well, actually, because we've been talking about Rohammer and all of that nice. stuff, and I've got my, my mind in the 80s, <laughs> remember your Walkman and the cassette tapes that you used to play? Mm-hmm. Do you remember that if you'd had a tape, particularly if it was like a 90-minute you know, tape or worse, a 120 where the tape's very thin, if you had a tape that had sat around for a while and not been played or rewound... 
do you remember that sometimes you'd play it and in the in the gap between two tracks you'd suddenly hear a very faint echo of the last bit of the previous song um and the reason is that obviously the magnetic influence on at the end of a song and say it ended with a like a crashing chord that little bit of magnetism on the tape we pressed up against the next rotation of the tape and of course over time the magnetism would kind of bleed through and that is sort of what happens except it's electronic or electrical inside computer memory because modern DRAM chips have an enormously high density you know the, the actual space on the silicon where each bit is stored and generally speaking a bit it's stored by a kind of minute super miniaturized capacitor which a, a capacitor is just a piece of electronics that can store an electrical charge so there's a, a capacitor and a tiny little transistor next to it and by switching the transistor you can get the capacitor to charge up or discharge and there it can hold zero or one so you imagine when you're reading from memory you actually need to keep discharging one row of capacitors inside the chip because they're not switched one by one that would mean too many wires in the chip so they're actually arranged in in parallel rows physically on the chip so if you just keep reading memory, you actually need to keep doing all this electrical stuff. You fire up some a row of transistors and then the row of capacitors right next to them discharge. So there's all this electronic stuff going on. So guess what? After time, that electrical activity may affect the data stored in the capacitors in the rows immediately adjacent to it, even though those have not been accessed at all. So what that means is, and you know, if you're unlucky, what can happen is that the values of nearby bits in the next row could flip. So some charge might leak into a capacitor that's supposed to be storing zero, so it turns into a one, or charge might leak out from a capacitor that's supposed to be holding on to enough electrons to read out as one, so that it turns into zero. So basically, in a very haphazard sort of way, if you can read the same memory location over and over and over and over and over and over and over again a zillion times very, very quickly, then you might accidentally write to nearby locations in memory. And of course, when that happens, you probably expect the operating system is going to crash. But these researchers actually figured out a way that instead of getting a crash, they could actually use it to achieve what you might call malware-like results. So basically... You do lots of lots of legal reading of memory that's assigned to you, and then you manage to change memory in parts of the program that have nothing to do with you that you shouldn't be able to access at all, regardless of the access permissions and access control in the operating system itself. Sounds very, very high tech slash super dangerous doesn't it? If you buy RAM with built-in error correction, does that help with this or is it It helps, superseded? apparently. So yes, ECC RAM helps, but even having ECC memory, which very few laptops will because it's much more expensive, it's not enough on its own to protect against this row hammering problem. So there are all sorts of mitigations that have been put in there by the chip manufacturers to try and prevent this being a problem. But the researchers behind this smash attack found some ways, not only that they could actively exploit this row hammering danger by flipping stuff and causing a crash, uh, but they could actually do it inside a browser. 
So in theory, what they're saying is they could publish a dubious web page. You go there, they run some JavaScript in your browser. Now, it might have to run for ages and ages and ages, and you might get security warnings from your browser saying a program on this website is causing your browser to slow down. What do you want to do about it? So you might well notice, but at least in theory, they were able to show how just visiting a web, a dodgy website with a browser and running only JavaScript, they might be able to exploit this memory degradation, if you like, in a way that means they could do something naughty, such as access readout data they weren't supposed to have, so data leakage, or implant code that wasn't supposed to be there, i.e. drop malware on your computer. So that's why it's all exciting and everyone goes, oh, row hammering, we're all doomed. And, you know, what are we going to do about it? Fortunately, there are a few things. <laughs> I still like the name, row hammer. Yep. Um, Smash is pretty fun as well, but row hammer, especially now that... Well, Smash is short for synchronized, many-sided row hammer attacks from yeah. JavaScript. Yeah. I so row hammer's in there. <laughs> I would have called it Smasserfrodge. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole thing what? in, but, yeah. <laughs> but uh, somehow they left out the JavaScript bit, so they mm -hmm. just called it Smash. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Um, so, does the average person need to be concerned about this? I think the answer is they should probably be interested in it because it's fascinating reading, and you don't need to be too technical to understand it. It just does indicate that as we as we race towards ever-increased performance and ever-increased memory capacity, it does come with some costs in the kind of reliability or unreliability that makes cybersecurity harder. The good news for us is that, you know, if you look at this took them a couple of years to work on and it produces a kind of attack where the crooks probably have to know in advance what sort of memory chips you've got because the, the, the way that row hammering affects chips depends on who made them and possibly even the year they were manufactured. They'd have to know what operating system you were running. They'd have to know how the operating system was configured because there are some occasions when this doesn't work. And even then, they might just crash your system or produce no bad effects. So sadly, the reason we probably don't have to worry about row hammer is that there are much easier, yet more fertile means by which the crooks can attack us. That's the, that's the good news slash bad news. Don't worry about Rowhammer, because there's a, a thousand other much worse things you need to worry about first. <laughs> yeah. uh, but good to know. it is this eternal reminder that as you try and get more and more performance out of the chip sets we've already got, and as you try and pack more and more features and data storage into the chip, then there may be side effects that things that weren't supposed to be a security problem nevertheless turn out to be. The good news is that in the Smash report, they were using a particular Linux kernel. I don't think that version is supported anymore because the research was done several months ago. And they were relying on Firefox on Linux version 81. And they were relying on the kernel, Linux kernel set into a mode that has some uh, special feature set that's supposed to speed up memory allocation. And if you turn off that speed up, then their attack no longer works. It's not a general defense, but it defends in this case. I tried it on my Linux, and I could not measure any performance difference in desktop usage. So yeah, this is more of a kind of theoretical or academic issue than it is a practical problem. But it is a reminder that, as cybersecurity researchers and cryptographers love to say, just remember, attacks only ever get better. So our defenses have got to get better as well. Ooh, 
we fantastic summary thank you duck again if you and it's got rohammer in it and and i can't get the song out of my head Mm -hmm. (laughs) now we keep having these earworms on this episode and i'm okay you know the only way to get rid of an earworm is to sing a kylie minogue song and then you solve the earworm Mm -hmm. but you get a new one um well on that note quickly scientifically i have a friend who told me what the earworm uh a nuclear option is and it is the song i can't wait by new shoes if you guys remember the beat of oh 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 god you've done it again why why i don't have the nuclear option sledgehammer anymore but i have got i can't get you out of my head by somebody else stuck in my head you're welcome. So, if you need to blow up a song, you can blow it up with new shoes. I can't wait. Now, moving on <laughs> to technology and Blow up a song. <laughs> All right. Let us stretch our legs and talk about technology etymology, where we discuss the origins of everyday tech terms. Lots of talk about Dogecoin this week as the initially a joke, but now kind of serious cryptocurrency surges in value, the coin is tied to the infamous Doge meme of a Shiba Inu dog thinking aloud in Comic Sans font. But did you know that the actual Doge term can be traced back to the wonderfully irreverent Homestar Runner web cartoon from the turn of the century? In one webisode, Homestar refers to Strong Bad as his dog, meaning his buddy, saying, Yo, my D O G E. To which Strong Bad replies, Your Doge? What are you talking about? Much wow indeed. <laughs> is that serious? Is that how you say it? Doge. Dogecoin. Yep. Like as in a, Doge. The, what as are you talking a, about? A, a ruler in the Venetian Republic or whatever. I thought it was doggy. No, it's Doge. As in it's a doggy coin because it's got a yeah. dog on it. I think we oh, covered this, but as Strong Bad replies, it. you're Doge. What are you talking about? Well, that oh, seals yeah. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to co- keep on calling it doggy coin because I think it's <laughs> doggy coin sounds really cute. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, well, that's what I thought. I, I didn't realize it was it had this this your doge onerous undertone. Mm-hmm. Never mind. Double fun fact: I at one point yeah. owned, owned like thirty thousand Doge coins that I bought for nothing, wow. and I sold them in early January because I was oh, like, no. "This is stupid." And <gasps> now I would have been a, a, not a not a, it would be a thousand air. Thousand air. Yeah. Look so, at you. Every uh. every time I come across some cryptocurrency riches, I spoil them away before my time has come. So. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Let's talk Doug. about something more uplifting, like a giant IoT bug. This is a B Wayne, which, as everyone knows, is a bug with an impressive name, B Wayne. No, it's Dwayne. Dwayne. That's what I <laughs> meant to say. You're making a mistake I did with the doggy. <laughs> well, yo. Okay. With, now we're even. Great. This is great. Yeah. This is a, a bug called Name Wreck. It's an IoT bug that apparently affects at least 100 million IoT devices. And not to get to the punchline too soon, hmm. but as one commenter asks, how am I supposed to know what operating system or DNS code is running on my Instant Pot or my coffee maker. So, Ooh, yeah. Oh, what's the story here? And perhaps more importantly, how can I check if my thermostat is affected? Yes, I I don't know what time I replied to that comment, but it did keep me up because I thought, oh, well, there's an easy answer to that. And I just typed in, sorry, you can't. And I thought, 
hang on, <laughs> that's not terribly <laughs> helpful. I've got to try and provide some means by which if you really wanted to find out and you're prepared to put in the technical effort, how could you find out if any of these several CV numbered bugs applied to a device that you had? And the answer is, in some cases, you sort of can't. So the problem with IoT bugs like the ones here, even if they're in open source components, is how do you know whether that component is the one in the IoT device that you just bought? And even if it is the one in there, how do you know whether that particular bug is exposed in the version of the code that they used? So unfortunately, that's a very open question. And the answer is that sometimes you actually have to choose the device you buy based on what you can find out about it online and based on how open the vendor is going to be. So that's the bad news is if you've got an IoT device and it's one of the claimed 100 million that might be vulnerable here, you sort of have to rely on the vendor or the maker of the device. You have to rely on them to tell them whether you were vulnerable in the first place and if you were, whether it's fixed now. Good luck with that. So the problem with these bugs is that they were in what's called DNS, domain name system. You know, that's the thing that turns names like nakedsecurity.sophos.com, so just that's what you have to remember, into whatever network number, whatever server we're at today. And so it's kind of important in anything, any network bigger than about three computers to have DNS working. And you think, but an IoT device isn't going to be a DNS server. The problem is that these bugs are in what's called the DNS client or the DNS resolver. That's the program that before you do any web request, say, just goes out and says, let me find out where that is. And these bugs involved sending back deliberately malformed replies. So in some cases, they could actually cause the IoT device, just by looking up a server name to find out where it is, could cause that IoT device to run unauthorized code, remote code execution, very dangerous. Basically means you can implant malware. In some cases, all that you could do was simply provoke the device to crash. But if you can keep doing, keep doing that over and over and over, and let's say it's an alarm system, then you can imagine if you're a crook and you can crash the alarm system within half a second every time it comes back up, that's pretty advantageous if you're planning to break into a warehouse. In one of the cases, it was you could basically feed back a fake reply, a fake result. So you could you could trick the IoT device in believing that the super secure server it wanted to go to was actually somewhere else online. And that means you could, in theory, feed it fake content and it wouldn't realize. Okay, so I'm guessing patch early, patch often. Do you look for firmware updates for your devices? And uh, regardless of whether you know or not if your device is affected, it's good to update the firmware on those things regularly absolutely anyway. if if you can if your vendor is in the habit of regularly publishing firmware and putting out what's called a change log or release notes that mm -hmm. tells you what got fixed then that's probably a vendor you want to prefer over one that's got this random bit of firmware you don't know where it came from and the last file you can find to download has a 2013 date on it or something like that and the flip side of this, Doug, I think is more for the programmers and IoT developers amongst us than the users, is don't be shy to tell your customers what they need to know 
when there's an issue like this. If you think that your device is not vulnerable, put out a note that says, we don't use that version, so as far as we can tell, you're okay. Or put out a note to say, we think we are vulnerable, but we're going to update you know, within the next two weeks or three weeks or whatever it is. So don't say nothing, because that means that your users have to assume that either you've got something to hide, or perhaps even worse, you have absolutely no idea. And so, of course, if you're a purchaser, you know, be prepared to pay more for a product that actually treats you more professionally in telling you whether the device has vulnerabilities, and if so, what the company is going to do about them. Okay, that is IoT Bug Report claims at least 100 million devices may be impacted on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And if you're interested in this type of stuff, check out a great new report by our Sophos Labs team. It can be found on news.sophos.com, and it's called Nearly Half of Malware Now Uses TLS to Conceal Communications. Sophos Labs found that as more of the Internet uses Transport Layer Security, or TLS, analysis of our detection telemetry shows that the volume of TLS encrypted communications by malware has doubled in a year. And Paul, I know you have a companion piece on naked security as well. Any thoughts on the report? Yes, I think the reason for mentioning it immediately after talking about DNS insecurities and IoT devices is that, you know, when we often, when we talk about IoT devices, it's not so much about, oh, there's a DNS problem, although they're surprisingly common. It's, hey, these guys forgot to do the encryption because it took up too much space, or it was too hard, or they thought no one noticed, or they wanted a quicker go-to-market time, or whatever. So often, you know, when you heard us, oh, we're going to talk about IoT problems, a lot of listeners were probably thinking, oh, golly, they forgot the encryption again, so the crooks can use your webcam to find out when you're not at home, rather than you using it to find out when the crooks are. And the irony in the timing is that, you know, this, we've, Sophos Labs report actually shows that whilst IoT vendors have been notorious, at least in the past, for not bothering with encryption and not getting on the let's do the encryption train, the crooks are doing it the other way around. And it now seems to be a majority of malware is going, you know what, if we encrypt our stuff, we won't stop people blocking it, but at least it means that we won't stand out quite as much as we used to. So there's the irony. If you're an IoT developer and you're not taking cryptographic stuff seriously, then consider yourself professionally embarrassed because you're not doing it, but the cyber criminals are. Shouldn't be like that. Not that I feel strongly about it. <laughs> <laughs> Again, check out all this TLS research that we have happening on news.sophos.com or Naked Security. .sophos.com. Guys, I'm really excited. We have a listener question this week. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> okay, just me? All right, I guess I'm the only one who's excited. Uh, <laughs> well, I had to prepare the answer, and, and it's a fantastic question. But, it is a fantastic you know, It's one question. of those questions where the answer is like a podcast of its own. So actually, maybe we should do a mini-sode about this. But for now, we do have some answers so far away. Can I we? do think we should do a mini-sode on this. But yes, to, I don't want to ignore a listener question. Um, so right before we get into our oh no and close out this episode, let's, let's uh, give a little time to Jay, who writes us with... Hello, listening to yours and other podcasts, I'd love to have a career in cybersecurity. Me, 
Lucky break into a help desk job after an arts degree. No programming knowledge. I don't even know what a cybersec job would look like, so I don't know what to study or what courses to apply for. What's the day-to-day needs slash expectations of someone in the industry? The first thing I want to say is that I think that if, if, you've, if you did an arts degree and then you thought, I want to escape from all of this, so get a job in a help desk, IT help desk, you've actually kind of made a great start because I, I have a de- my, my degree was in computer science I started as a programmer and a malware researcher and for reasons too complicated to go into I I ended up for a, a, a few really 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 exciting informative interesting and amazing years uh, in charge of software's tech support back in the day and that was a real eye-opener for me being in charge of support suddenly made me realize that actually if you're used to dealing with people's questions, you very quickly realise that for all that there are some people who genuinely ask silly questions that they didn't really need to, there is sort of no such thing as a stupid question, only a stupid answer. And some of these fantastic things that your programmers have done may not work quite so well or be quite so comprehensible or understandable or useful or practicable when people are trying to use them in the real world. So I think that being on a help desk, actually, if you want to then take that as a way of, wow, what's paining people? What are the questions they keep asking? You can probably advise yourself on some key things where you want to start. So without getting too detailed about it, I would recommend that, you know, just just from a hobbyist point of view, to get started, to decide out, decide, you know, do I want to go and study formally at college or university or whatever? Get into programming. It's not as hard as you think. And my recommendation, not no, not particular for or against the language, but it's just very, very useful because lots of cybersecurity tools rely on it. Go and start learning Python 3. That's my recommendation. There are other languages that are commonly used in security tools. Lua is another one used by programs like Wireshark and Nmap. So that gives you a way of learning how to program in a very easy environment where there's loads of supporting free stuff to help you learn. It also lets you mess around with cybersecurity tools on the side. I'd recommend if you don't know already, maybe you probably do if you're in a help desk job, need to do this a lot. Learn how to set up and run your own virtual machines using software like VMware or VirtualBox or QEMU or something like that on Windows, Mac or Linux, because that means you can set up an operating system. And if it blows up, well, you haven't lost. You don't have to reconfigure your computer. It's like a, a software computer that's running on your real operating system so you can afford to take risks and do experiments. And then, you know, learn, start playing around with cybersecurity tools like Kali Linux. That's one way you can start. Instead of learning everything from scratch, it just provides you with a whole load of tools and tutorials that just let you play around in safety on your own computer in some virtual machines to see what this cybersecurity hacking stuff is all about. That will give you a way of learning what things you think you might actually be interested in. But most importantly, I would suggest, particularly if you're somewhere where coronavirus restrictions are starting to withdraw a little bit find a local user forum find a group who meet regularly of cybersecurity peeps and just join in so before saying oh i'm going to go and study this and then once i've studied i'll go and try and learn on the job first find out what it takes you might actually find that programming doesn't interest you as much as you thought and that you go oh no i don't want to do this after all I'm going to learn to play the violin. That's perfectly fine. So have a play, learn some stuff, but most importantly, try and meet other people 
in your local community where you can hang out and you know as much as you learn from them you'll be able to teach the, the the next wave of people in the future and then once you've done that for a little while you'll probably have an idea of the kind of skills that other people have got and the ones that you might like to try and get as well or instead and that will give you an idea of the kind of jobs that you might be interested in applying for i would really not try and put the cart before the horse help desk is a great start like you could go work look for a help desk job at a cybersecurity company we have right. a whole help desk here at sophos and they help us but they and then you can once you get used to the business you can be like oh i actually want to do this I, it's interesting also we have a family friend who has a kid in college and i was like what's he studying she was like cybersecurity oh. and i was like what that's a thing. That's an actual yeah. major now. So you can take cybersecurity classes. And she was asking me, she's like, how'd you get into it? And I was like, oh, it's interesting. I was very determined to work in cybersecurity. See, I graduated in 2001. I fell ass backwards into blogging, which didn't exist <laughs> when I was in college. And I fell ass backwards into cybersecurity, which didn't really exist when I was in college. So yeah, go study something completely unrelated. And don't be afraid to fall backwards into things because you may yeah. end up somewhere that you don't even... No, it doesn't even exist yet. You could work on Mars. They, they might need tech support there. Help <laughs> desk on Mars. on Mars. You could work on Mars. There's just such a fantastic array of open source cybersecurity tools. Yeah. And there are loads of open source projects in, in general, um, and cybersecurity in particular, that are actually crying out for people to help with them. And you don't have to be an expert before you get started. You can get started in order to become an expert. Because the one thing you'll notice if you spend a lot of time with open source projects is that, and I, I, I mean this in the nicest way possible, some people may disagree with me, but the one thing that's often utterly appalling in open source stuff is the documentation because everyone yeah. assumes that they could just use jargon words or oh well the documentation you can kind of figure it out by reading the code and that makes the software harder to pitch to people it makes it less likely that new people will want to use it and it makes it harder to fix and take forward so there are a lot of open source projects crying out for people to help with things like documentation and to document it you have to understand it and also means that you might then get into the habit of filing bug reports which a lot of programmers don't like to do but they're really really helpful so there are a lot of ways that you can get involved and be much more helpful than you think doing stuff that will teach you how to be as good as the programmers at the moment who don't know how to do things like the documentation and the support and the help that you already know. So, yeah, as you say, Help Desk, it can be a surprisingly excellent introduction to different stuff in IT and particularly in cybersecurity because we could certainly do with more cybersecurityers just right now. Also check out product marketing because uh, if you have an arts degree... There's right. a lot of technical people at companies like this, but it's very rare to find someone that's technical and can express themselves creatively. So yep. something like that, marketing, product marketing. You could even look at professional services, which is kind of like we have a team here that helps uh, our customers set up our products when they first are getting their uh, solutions together. So that's mm -hmm. kind of like help desk with the, with the customers. But yeah, look at marketing too. Product marketing is a little more technical and high demand for product marketers. 
Yeah, and I'll just insert one last piece of advice on top of all of this. This is like general career advice is don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to ask for a mentor. If you know somebody or you get connected through, an, uh, you know, meetups or whatever online groups with other cybersecurity professionals, don't be afraid to put yourself out there and be like, hey, I'm, I'm willing to connect with someone who's willing to mentor me and teach me new things. Um, if you listen to any of our special episodes with Rachel Toback, uh, Karen Elazari. Uh, we have an, uh, another one coming up with um, Eva Galperin, and then we have an old one with Katie Mazuris. Consistently across the board, whenever I've talked uh, to these, you know, now leaders in cybersecurity, they always got their start because someone opened the door for them and gave them a chance, or they asked someone, "Hey, can you help me? Help teach me about X." So don't be afraid to put yourself out there and 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 look and seek out a mentor. Absolutely. And all you need is the interest and the time. And Kimberly, as you say, maybe somebody just to help you along when you're feeling dispirited and stuck. And there are loads of people that are willing to help in the cybersecurity community. It's actually quite a cool place. It's a very cool place. I mean, Twitter, the Twitter sphere for cybersecurity professionals is like, uh, it's such a great supportive and um vocal group so maybe jump onto twitter and start following some people and get some advice all righty man we have our favorite time of the episode (laughs) sorry everybody else it is everyone's favorite time (laughs) let's just be honest it's the oh no of the week and this oh no comes from a listener again we have a lot of listener love this week i'm very very happy to say that mr gabriel writes not Peter Gabriel. <laughs> oh, I yes. didn't even put that together. No, it's not wow. Peter Gabriel. At least I don't think Row so. Rowhammer. I mean, I must say the, maybe the earworm's back. I should yep. have done that. I deeply regret it. I'm terribly sorry. But do carry on. Mr. Gabriel writes, not Peter Gabriel. At least we can't confirm it. Many years ago, during the infancy of shopping online, I had a lady come to me angrily because the credit card reader on her computer erased the magnetic strip on her credit card. I asked her to explain exactly what she did to damage her card and walk me through all of the steps she did because nobody really had a credit card reader for their home computer. Oh, God. She booted up her her computer went to the same site as before, and then proceeded to pull out her credit card and insert it into... The A-Drive? The floppy drive. No! (laughs) The floppy drive. She said, and then I went here to activate the A-Drive because I know that is how that machine works. I let out a groan and explained to her that was a floppy drive for reading floppy disk only and then explained how and why the drive erased her magnetic strip. The you know what's weird, end. Kimberly? You'll probably have to ex- re-explain that to today's listeners. This is true. Because they may not actually they don't know, know yeah. that storage used to rely on electromagnetism. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they don't was, even know what a floppy disk is. There's a magnetic is. field in there. The kids, they don't know. Um, oh, no. Okay, I'm convinced, I'm convinced this lady, someone, someone in her family screwed with her and was like yeah yeah auntie you can put your credit card there's no way there's no like there's no way someone definitely duped her and she was 1000 percent convinced that this was a credit card reader like i 
I'm picturing a naughty nephew doing this. This is what I'm picturing. <laughs> really? Oh, no. Like, some, <laughs> like uh, someone who's just like absolutely getting joy out of <laughs> seeing her put her credit card in her floppy disk. Or maybe it was a coworker. Yeah, that is indeed hmm. an oh, no. It is an oh, no, right? Love it. Oh, no. Uh Friends, if you've enjoyed this episode, you can maybe go leave us a five-star review. Peter Gabriel, mm. uh, we gave you a great par- parody song. Um, you can leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcast. And of course, if you have an oh no, you can submit it to us just like Gabriel, who we're theorizing is Peter Gabriel. It's got to be. Uh, it's got to be. <laughs> There's just too many coincidences. Uh, you can submit your oh no to us. You can email us, tips at sophos.com. Or you can leave an anonymous comment on any of our articles on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. You can DM us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Naked Security. And until next time, stay secure. Stay secure. Stay secure.